You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Tyler Skaggs taking the mound for the Angels. Tyler Skaggs' career was cut short. The 27-year-old standout pitcher for the Los Angeles Angels died from an overdose in a Dallas hotel room in 2019. Following an eight-day trial, a jury took only 90 minutes to convict former Angels communications director Eric Kay of providing Skaggs with the drugs that led to his death. Here's Kay's attorney, Reagan Wynn. This is a tragedy all the way around. You know, Eric Kay is getting ready to do minimum 20 years in federal penitentiary, and it goes up from there. And Tyler Skaggs is gone. And, uh, I mean, it's a tragedy. There's no winners. Joining me is Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman, author of The United States of Opioids. Harry Kay is not what we think of as a drug dealer. No, definitely not. He was the former communications director of, of the Angels. He was a guy who was very connected to multiple players on the team. And even when he wasn't in his formal communication director position anymore, he was really kind of a gopher who was helping players out when they had different needs. Certainly not a classic, what we think of when we think of a, a drug dealer. Did Skaggs die not because he was snorting oxycodone, but because the oxycodone was fake? There were counterfeit oxycodone pills? Correct. Correct. Basically, when Eric Kay went out and got pills that he thought were oxycodone, they were, in fact, counterfeit fentanyl-laced pills that were much, much more powerful. The dosing was much, much higher and much more dangerous than real oxycodone. And so he unwittingly gave Tyler Skaggs pills that they both mistook because they had the imprint of the M30 and the right color to look like 30 milligram oxycodone. And it's fentanyl that's been responsible or linked to the deaths of Prince and Tom Petty. Is it most connected with overdose deaths? Yeah, since 2014, the vast majority of the deaths, I think that the number depends on the region of the country, but it's probably three quarters, if not higher, 80 percent plus of deaths since 2014 are from these counterfeit pills which we call fentanyl. It's actually a whole toxic mix of related synthetic compounds. Tell us what the trial revealed about the culture of drug use in the Los Angeles Angels clubhouse. There was testimony from multiple players, including like Matt Harvey, for example, that they had been using opioid pain pills for years. And it sounded like in most cases, these were players who were playing through injuries and they were actually helped for whatever the short-term need was. It also was clear there was a, a widespread awareness 
that Kay was doing this for lots of players and that these players had problems. Tyler Skaggs' stepbrother testified he tried to help Tyler get off of the pill. Skaggs' mother testified that he had tried to quit several times. And so the thing that came across to me out of this trial was that there were no secrets. This was not a surprise. Jeff Kay was not, you know, some evil menace. He was really embedded into the life of the uh, Angels team, as was the use and the chronic need for pain management that these pills serve. I want to point out that the Angels have said they weren't aware of any employees providing opioids to players or that Skaggs was using them. Now, Kay was also hooked on opioid pain pills and also tried to kick them? Yeah. The sad irony of this case is that Jeff Kay was also a victim, the only difference being that he didn't pay with his life as Tyler Skaggs did. Is there any indication that this is still going on in clubhouses? Oh, I believe this is still a problem happening throughout baseball and other professional sports. About 10, 15 years ago, we saw the DEA do an intensive audit of multiple professional teams, baseball teams, football teams, and really cracking down on the doctors who at the time, back then, if we go back to the early 2000s, were supplying players. And so what happened is we essentially took away the legal supply because the doctors were being accused and were afraid of losing their licenses by making pills easily available. And instead, it was replaced largely with a secretive network. And the only difference was that Jeff Kay had the misfortune to get counterfeit pills. And my sense is that on most teams, the illegal trafficking that's going on is with pharmaceutical grade oxycodone and other pills. But I I personally believe, and this is just anecdotal from what I've heard from people associated with various teams and from occasional calls that I get as a lawyer, is that this is still very much a problem throughout professional sports. So Major League Baseball does have a treatment program policy for, for opioid use disorder, doesn't it? It does. The problem is that First, there's a lot of uh, shame attached to admitting that you have a problem publicly that is a danger to guys who are stressed out. They, in a sense, win the financial lottery by making Major League Baseball and, and don't necessarily want to put it in jeopardy by admitting they have a problem. And the other reality is that these players are under enormous physical stress with the 162-game season in baseball, with the intensity in all uh, professional sports, with the demands on them. And I think there's really a gap, actually, in medical care to acknowledge that we are asking these guys to play and perform for fans, for their teams, under enormous stress with a different standard of pain medicine, that that we have to somehow find a way to thread the needle of keeping them physically safe, but acknowledging that they are putting their bodies under a stress that, that most of us couldn't possibly endure for even, you know, the shortest period of time. And is there any indication that Major League Baseball is paying attention to that problem? You know, I've had conversations with folks associated with healthcare in baseball, their medical directors. I think there's awareness that there's a problem, but I don't think that they are anywhere near a solution. The positive is that this case was a huge wake up. The the challenge is that we have, in some ways, an intractable problem of addressing the physical demands on these players. I do think that there is progress being made in reducing the shame and having players coming out and talking about the issues they've had does help the culture in the league and makes it easier for other people to step forward. But I think we have a long way to go. 
Speaking of coming forward, four former teammates of Skaggs testified basically that they knew Skaggs took opioids, admitted to taking drugs themselves, and that Kay had been their supplier. You mentioned Matt Harvey. He was given immunity to testify so that he can't be prosecuted. But if he were to be signed by a team, let's say, he could immediately be suspended for what he admitted on the stand. So is there a built-in reason for players not to come forward? Yeah, Matt Harvey, the late career player who I think had to have made a decision that testifying in this case could essentially lead to a suspension and certainly was going to make him less attractive. But, you know, he's a guy who has had a great career. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, right? He was a starting pitcher for an all-star game. I think he made a decision when he testified that he was prepared that this might be the end of his career. Obviously, I think players who still have more good years ahead of them were not and in general are not going to be willing to talk openly in the way that he did. The defense was that they were fellow addicts and the agreement was that Skaggs would pay for their drugs and Kay would handle the transactions. And the defense also made an argument that ultimately Skaggs' death, you know, the responsibility was with the pitcher himself. But none of that seemed to work for the jury. Look, I think, unfortunately, the easiest way to understand this story, even though I think it's kind of false and it's missing the bigger picture, was to paint Kay as some kind of a villain. You know, it's always easy for juries, frankly, for everybody, for law enforcement, for families who are suffering to look for a bad guy. And so Kay provided that. But I think the broader picture that was missed by the way that this case and so many cases are tried is just this tragic situation that's across America, right, that this is really part of American life. We had over 100,000 Americans die of similar deaths. And there are so many more people like Jeff Kay who have a problem themselves that leads them into sharing the pills. And I think the more that we kind of villainize people like him and treat them as the problem, we're missing the deeper questions about why there aren't better medical solutions for so many people in pain about why people feel so isolated in taking these drugs and about why why people are willing to take these risks. There's something to me that's very broken in our system, in our society, in our healthcare that's leading to these deaths and focusing all of our attention on what a bad guy Jeff Kay is kind of gives us an out from really confronting those questions. Do criminal trials like these really deter anyone from using opioids? I don't think they do very much at all. I think the reality is that we have a culture, we have a fundamental problem of people who are taking risks with these pills because they feel a sense of hopelessness, because they are alone in the problems they're dealing with, and because of a lot of pain. Sometimes it's physical pain, as I think it was for Tyler Skaggs, and sometimes it's emotional and mental pain. And those problems are what's really driving this crisis. And trials like this are going to call attention, but they're not changing anyone's behavior, like in my opinion, until we start getting at those root causes. We're not going to see anything other than more overdose deaths year over year. The Skaggs family has a civil lawsuit pending against the Angels for negligence. Does that seem like an uphill battle proving that they were negligent? It's an open question what the responsibilities of the team, you know, were Did the team have a duty to keep, you know, how much did officials in the team know? Who saw this and failed to see what happened? Frankly, I haven't followed the evidence coming out in that case closely. I I think that case will be settled. And I do think that the Angels will be afraid to let a jury decide whether they had any responsibility because there's no way that this went on for so long with so many people on the team 
without somebody noticing what was going on. And it's a fair question to ask what the team knew, what they should have done, what they failed to do. And so I suspect we're going to see that case settled long before it gets to trial. Is this the last case of this kind that we're likely to see? No, I think we're going to keep seeing these cases where uh, we go after the sort of guy who, who carried the last mile in this problem. But my hope is that the more that people are aware that even high-profile athletes who appear to be the picture of success are suffering, that the more that we'll actually focus attention on the overdose crisis. I think the pandemic has been a little bit of a distraction, understandably, but we're coming out of the pandemic with a uh, overdose problem that's worse than ever. And and my hope is that we'll actually start to focus more public attention, more government attention on real solutions. Thanks, Harry. That's Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. A federal judge has ruled that former President Donald Trump must face lawsuits accusing him of inciting the January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection. D.C. federal judge Amit Mehta issued a sweeping 112-page opinion denying Trump's motions to dismiss three lawsuits. Joining me is Jennifer Rogers, an adjunct professor at NYU Law School. So he called this a one-of-a-kind case. How did he handle Trump's claims of presidential immunity? I thought Judge Mehta's opinion was terrific. I mean, it was comprehensive. It was thorough. He went through all of the arguments, and particularly with respect to the absolute immunity argument, he did a great job of dismantling all of Trump's arguments one by one, but without being you know, overly 
heavy-handed or sarcastic about it. So let's talk about why he said that the president doesn't have immunity here. So the issue comes down to whether what he said, what Trump said on January 6th, is an official act or not. So when a president speaks, he obviously speaks in large part about presidential issues, about policy matters, about things happening in the country. But just because it's a president speaking, it doesn't have to be something that's officially part of the presidency. And so that's what Judge Mehta was trying to parse. When former President Trump was out there telling the people at that rally to march to the Capitol, to take the country back, to stop Congress in what they were doing, was he acting as the president or was he acting on his own personal behalf uh, as opposed to as the president? So that's really what the judge was thinking about. And ultimately, he concluded that he was not acting in an official presidential capacity, but in fact, in his own personal capacity. And that's why he did not have immunity. He used a strange analogy at one point. Well, at least I consider it a little strange that President Trump's January 6th rally speech was akin to telling an excited mob that corn dealers starve the poor in front of the corn dealer's home. Yeah, he's, he's really trying to to get to the legal standard for what kind of speech is protected by the First Amendment versus is not protected by the First Amendment. So what he's really trying to do there is say that in order to not be protected speech, the the speech has to incite imminent violence, not just violence, not just unlawful activity generically, but imminent unlawful or violent behavior. So that's what he's really trying to think about. And that's ultimately one of the reasons he dismissed the lawsuit as to Donald Trump Jr. and Rudy Giuliani, because he found that the speech that they gave, though the words that they spoke, while generically kind of inciting potential violence, there was no kind of order to march to the Capitol now. And so the danger of imminent, imminent violence wasn't there. So that's really what he was trying to do by drawing these different analogies was to tease out the parameters of what the law says the speech has to be in order to lose protection. Were those the two main claims that uh, Trump had, the presidential immunity and the First Amendment? Yes, he had a few other things. He had no absolute immunity. He had the First Amendment claim, the political question doctrine. He said that, you know, the courts can't get involved in this issue. The legislators can't sue in the courts, the executive branch. He's trying to kind of to muddy those waters up. Um, and then he also said that because he was impeached and then acquitted, in the trial that that he can't now be sued after being after being acquitted of the impeachment for basically the same behavior and the judge rejected those two arguments as well. Did he say it was plausible that it could be proven that Trump entered into an agreement with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers? So what you have to remember is a, a couple things. First of all, this is a civil lawsuit So it's not a a criminal suit. So in order for the civil lawsuit to succeed, you have to have a few things, right? The plaintiffs have to show that they were actually injured by the defendant's action. And the uh, the wrongdoing that they allege is based on a section that, that forbids conspiring to basically stop uh, an official from acting in their official capacity, from doing an official act. So their argument is that the president and other people conspired through force or intimidation or threats to stop them from doing what they were supposed to be doing, which is certifying the vote. 
So they have to prove a conspiracy, but it's a civil conspiracy. Uh, and so the standards are different. And what the judge is saying with this plausible language also has to do with the legal standards, which is that because we're in a civil suit and this is a motion to dismiss, the judge actually takes the factual allegations that the plaintiffs are making as true. He's only going to dismiss if there's no plausible way after discovery, which we haven't even had yet, that they could prove their claims. So that's where he starts to say things like there has to be an agreement. Again, it doesn't have to be, though, a an explicit agreement, but because the president and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, because there was kind of this public dialogue where the president was announcing what he wanted to happen, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers actually sometimes on Twitter are answering him and responding to him and saying, yeah, we're getting ready for all of this too. That plausibly can create the kind of conspiracy that you can recover money from in a civil context. So this is just the first step, basically, in this lawsuit. And as you mentioned, because it's a motion to dismiss, the judge accepts the factual allegations that the plaintiff's making as true. Is this really a big deal that this lawsuit is going forward, that he that the judge made this decision, or are we making too much of it? I would say yes and no. Um, it's It's not indicative that they will win their suit, that at the end of the day, after all of the discovery and after they maybe even go to trial and try to convince a jury that they have a strong case and will win, but it gets you to discovery. So they now have succeeded in getting past the motion to dismiss stage, which means that there's going to be documents that have to be turned over. There are going to be depositions that the former president and other people will have to sit for. And so the plaintiffs will be able to collect a lot of information about what happened leading up to and on January 6th. So it's a big victory in that way in terms of what the plaintiffs and ultimately the public can learn, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to win at the end of the day. Have Trump's lawyers said whether they're going to appeal this or not? I would assume they would appeal it. I don't know what they have said, but I likewise assume uh, that they will appeal. And so whether or not the judge's decision is upheld depends a great deal on who's on the panel on the D.C. Circuit. It could be a very conservative panel or it could be a very liberal panel. Yes, as as it always does, although I will say, you know, the issue, like the legal issue of whether the president is absolutely immune is a big deal. Um, the other things about whether there's plausibility that you know, there's a, a cause of action here. Those are pretty standard things. I wouldn't expect anyone to overturn that aspect. But you're right on the legal issue. I mean, if you get the wrong panel, I suppose it's possible that they say, no, no, the president absolutely has immunity for things he says while president. I mean, that doesn't seem to be the right answer. And so, you know, I hope that's not what they decide, but that's at least possible. And this current Supreme Court hasn't made any decisions about that particular topic? Not that would cover this. I mean, there have been statements in the the Nixon case, and, you know, we've had a little bit about presidential immunity, but, you know, they like to decide things narrowly. That's how judges roll. They want to just decide on the facts and kind of leave the possibility of of other factual scenarios that come up another time for those, those times. So there's nothing that the Supreme Court has done to date that governs this, which is why Judge Mehta said he's kind of 
you know, in uncharted territory here and, and had such an extensive analysis in this case. So in another legal setback to the former president, a New York judge ruled that Trump, Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump have to testify under oath in the state AG's civil investigation of the Trump organization. Do you think Trump will actually ever sit for that deposition? I do. I do. I mean, he's he's going to run out of ways to avoid it. Um, and, you know, he's been deposed before. So uh, I think he will. Uh, I think he'll try to continue to delay it. But um, I think the judge ordered that they happen within three weeks. So he's going to be able to push that, I think, a little bit um, with some appeals. But, you know, remember, this is in state court. So, you know, his, his appeal is, is not necessarily to uh, some of the friendly federal judges that, that he has found in, in some of the litigations he's been involved with lately. So I, I think he'll have to sit for it. Now, I don't think he'll say much. I think they probably will all invoke their Fifth Amendment right to avoid self-incrimination. Uh, and so they probably won't say a lot of interesting things. But I think they will have to sit and go in and, and do that invocation. And, uh, you know, we'll see what we learn. It seems like a lot of things are going against Trump because his longtime accounting firm also dumped him as a client and said a decade of its financial statements weren't reliable, basically. Does it seem as if he hasn't had any favorable decisions in a while? Well, it certainly was a bad week for him last <laughs> week. But you know, I have to say, if you take a look at the court cases, just litigation that he's been involved in over the past few years, he's had virtually no victories. I mean, his strategy has been do what he wants to do uh, and then just try to stall the legal process, which, you know, is, is, is invoked to try to force him to do what he doesn't want to do. Uh, and that has been successful as a stalling tactic, but he really hasn't won any of these court battles. So it's not just a week-long losing streak. It's really a years-long losing streak. So I think things are just kind of catching up to him at some point as the merits of these matters finally get adjudicated after so many delays, and he doesn't have great legal claims, so he's losing those cases. Also, we have the kerfuffle over the documents, the presidential documents. The House Oversight Committee said that his handling of the documents appeared to constitute serious violations of the Presidential Records Act. So the question is, though, is it likely that the Justice Department is going to pursue anything against Trump for something like the Presidential Records Act? Well, they definitely are, are highly unlikely to pursue a Presidential Records Act violation because, you know, that's one of those strange laws that says you shall do this or you shall not do that, but then doesn't say what happens if you do or you don't. So there's no enforcement mechanism. So they can say presidential records must be handled thus and so. But it doesn't say, and if you don't, you will be imprisoned for not more than five years and fined, you know, $100,000. There's no enforcement provision. So they're not going to do anything about that. The issue is whether they do anything about classified materials that were mishandled, because DOJ does take that very seriously. So that's kind of what I'm waiting to see is, is I think they will investigate that. Whether they charge or not will be a matter of their discretion and will depend, I think, on what they learn about how those documents were handled and what they actually are, how serious the violation, how how secretive the, the material classification and so on. 
Uh, but I think they will at least investigate that aspect of it. So finally, I keep hearing that one of the reasons that Trump wants to run again for and become president again is to stop these lawsuits. And I'm wondering if his becoming president again could stop them, because in two years they might not have progressed. They might not have been at trial already. So, you know, the, there's there's a, a difference between civil actions and criminal actions. So we now know from uh, his presidency the first time around that really you can't charge a president uh, while he's president. Uh, the problem is with him, with all of these criminal investigations out there, I think those will run their course before the election and he'll either be charged or not. The civil actions can proceed. You know, there's no reason that that a president can't have a civil action going on as long as, you know, he, he doesn't need to take too much time away from his duties to take care of it. Uh, so while I agree with you, I think, you know, we will get into the election cycle, certainly before all of these civil actions have been resolved, because they do take a lot of time. They will be able to continue. There's nothing that will, will stop them. So, you know, if I'm advising him, I certainly would tell him not to make a decision based on that. I mean, there are a lot of factors into running or not running, but that doesn't seem to me to be a particularly solid one to, to think about. Thanks, Jennifer. That's Jennifer Rogers, an adjunct professor at NYU Law School. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.